Please turn to the book of Haggai, the third to final of the so-called Minor Prophets. And the verses that we shall consider this morning are found in chapter 2, Haggai chapter 2, and verses 6 to 9. This is a prophecy, a very clear prophecy, a promise, a prediction of the future. Now to us, these things have already happened because Christ has come. But in the time when this was written, 520 BC, before Christ, these things were somewhat dramatic. They were unexpected, and I shall explain. Our title this morning is really taken from verse 9. The Lord says to his people Israel, I will give peace. We notice in these verses, verses 6 to 9, that the words will and shall are mentioned five times. Verse 6, I will shake the heavens. Verse 7, I will shake the nations. I will fill this house with glory. Verse 9, in this place will I give peace. When we say I will and I shall, it's always caveated. I will if I can. I shall be there if something else doesn't crop up. But when the Lord God speaks, his wills, his shalls, are so powerful they are as good as done. And when the Lord speaks through the prophet Haggai, when he says, I will shake the heavens, he means it. He's going to do something so dramatic that the earth will be changed. Look at verse 22 of Haggai and, and chapter 2. He says here another promise, Haggai 2, verse 22, I will overthrow the, the kingdoms of this world and their thrones, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen, and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them, and the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. Something dramatic. A country has boundaries. Sometimes those boundaries move. One country takes over another, and so it expands. But what the Lord is saying here is that the countries, the kingdoms, those that rule them, they only have a role for as long as I allow them to have a role. You see, it's been described that the kingdoms of this world, they're like scaffolding. When the building is done, the scaffolding is taken down. When God has fulfilled his purposes with kings and kingdoms, the scaffolding is taken down. God has achieved his purposes. His plans will come to pass. And it's absolutely certain that these things shall be so. I will shake the nations. 
and the desire of all nations speaking of Christ shall come. So this is a great promise, a promise that the world needs to hear, a promise of peace, verse 9, I will in this place give peace, says the Lord of hosts. But there's a mystery here. The children of Israel have been taken into captivity, not once in Egypt, but the second time in Babylon. The first time, it was because of their sin. The second time, it was because of repeated sin. And they'd been taken under the nation of Babylon. Well, the first time, David had wanted to build a temple, but he wasn't allowed because he was a man of blood. He had blood on his hands. But Solomon built the temple. Sure, you know this. And it was a magnificent building. The building of the temple, it was 30 meters long, 10 meters wide, and there was gold everywhere. It was so grand. 987 BC, 500 years before Haggai, this temple of Solomon was built. The gold was on five tables. The gold was within a hundred basins. The gold was everywhere. It spoke of majesty. It spoke of wealth. It was something that was for the eye, the human eye, to behold something greater and more mighty and magnificent than had ever been built before, a gold temple. And no wonder, in verse 8 of Haggai 2, the Lord says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, because the problem was this, that first temple was destroyed. It would never be the same again. What was being built in Haggai chapter 2 was much smaller, much less grand. The Israelites, or 50,000 of them, under Zerubbabel had come back from Babylon to Jerusalem and they were now charged with building something that was very difficult and there was very few of them. And they didn't have many resources and materials. They didn't have much gold. And now they were building a building that seemed inferior. So small. Not really much to look at. Not so grand. And they thought it was all a waste of time. This isn't going to be like Solomon's temple. This isn't going to have the grandeur, the gold. Oh no, we're wasting our time, they thought. And Haggai comes along and he encourages the people. He encourages them that actually what they're doing is going to be part of something far more glorious than Solomon's temple. It might not seem like it. It might seem small. 
It might seem unmajestic, but no, through this temple, there will be the evidence that God is at work. He will shake the nations. And into this temple will come the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the probable meaning of this verse, verse 7. There is another meaning. We'll come to that. But through this second temple, a physical building, yes, in a sense, but much more important than that, through Christ, through his church, through the many churches where Christ will be honored and glorified. Verse 9, he says, in this place, not literally speaking of a building, but speaking of himself, in this place, in the place where I decide to make my home, there will be greater glory. I have the silver, I have the gold, and I will make something far more glorious than what you can make out of silver and gold. And there, I will assert my rights, the rights to the hearts of all my people, and millions of sin-damaged lives will be mended. In that place, I will give Peace, that's what the world needs, isn't it? Christmas time. We come at a time when there are still wars raging. We need peace. But we need more than the laying down of weapons. We need the peace in hearts. The peace which passes all understanding the peace which gives us a settled heart that doesn't depend upon where we are and who we're with and what we've got, but the peace that says, I'm right with God, so I'm at peace with the world. I'm at peace with my family. In all the noise and the bustle and all the controversy of the world, we can say, I have peace with God. That's what I need. We go back to chapter 1. These people, the people that Haggai is addressing, they don't seem to have much peace. Verse 5, he says, Now therefore saith the Lord, consider your life, consider your ways. That's the catchphrase of Haggai. Consider your ways. Look at your life. Look at your life this morning. Do you really have peace? Do you have a peace that doesn't depend on whether you're at church? A peace that doesn't depend upon whether you're with your husband or your wife or your children? Do you have peace with God? Consider your ways. Here's a challenge, verse 6. You've sown lots of seed, but you haven't harvested much in your life. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, but you're not filled up and satisfied. 
You have clothes, but they're not warm. And you earn wages and you put them in bags and there's holes in those bags. You see, Haggai is saying, your whole life is like a bucket. It's got holes in the bottom. You put everything in, water, food, wages, clothing. And it's not enough. It doesn't satisfy. Verse 7, in case you've missed it. Consider your life. Consider your ways. Why do you toil? Why do you sweat? Why do you worry and why are you anxious? You're just tipping more and more into the bucket and it's falling out the bottom and you're not really satisfied. Verse 8, you go up to the mountain. You bring wood and you panel your homes and you think that having a home that's just right, a DIY perfect home, you think that will satisfy? You think having all those additions, you think having cedar panelled rooms on the ceiling, on the wall, you think that that will satisfy? Where is your peace? Where's the source of your satisfaction? Verse 9, you looked for much, but it came to little. When you brought it home, I did blow on it. It was puffed away. It promised so much, it delivered so little. And then he says to them, but look at my house. You spent all your time on your own house, your house that didn't satisfy. And so that's the context of how Haggai speaks to the people. There were some two million or more still there back in Babylon, and only 50,000 had come back, and even they had turned their attention to DIY instead of to the Lord. They were discouraged. They thought they were wasting their time. They thought that what they were doing would be nowhere near as grand as what Solomon did. And so here's the message, verse 6 of chapter 2. Thus says the Lord. Well, whenever we read that, it has power. Wake up. Listen. This is the God of a great army, the Lord of hosts speaking. And he says, yet once, in a little while, probably speaking of the change of ruler from the Persians to the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Romans, yet once, it's just a little while, and I will shake the heavens. I'll turn the world upside down. The old world order will be replaced by the new world order. And just to show its prophecy, the earth, the sea, the dry land, there will be a turbulence. Many won't see it, but there will become a new world order. Verse 7, it will affect the whole world 
all the nations. This is figurative language. It's speaking in the terms of prophecy. It doesn't literally mean that all the seas and all the land will be turned upside down, but God is going to do something so dramatic, the like the world has never seen. I will shake all nations. What I will do will affect every country in the world. The smallest and the largest countries will be impacted. Do you remember when the Lord gave the Ten Commandments? You can read it in Exodus 19, verse 16. This is what happened. There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mountain, Mount Sinai, and the voice of a trumpet exceeding loud, so all the people trembled. That was the giving of the law, the giving of God's commandments, so that the whole world knew how significant that moment was. God gave signs and wonders to show that this was significant, the giving of the law. And the whole mountain quaked. And as the children of Israel looked up, they saw something astonishing. They felt it. All the senses were stimulated. But in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12 and verse 18, the writer says this of the work of Christ, not the giving of the commandments, but the setting up of the new kingdom. You can turn to this. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, looking back to Sinai, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, because you couldn't keep my laws, but you're come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God. What's going to happen now is something even more amazing. The first time, it was the giving of the law which spoke of death, judgment, hell, separation. But the second time, when Christ comes, there's going to be something altogether better. Ye are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, Jerusalem, and heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem. You see, there's a kingdom being established in the prophet Haggai. For thus says the Lord, I will shake all nations, all the earthly kingdoms and earthly structures and boundaries, they're going to disappear in the sight of God. There was Israel and there was the Gentiles. But when Christ comes, there will be one nation. There won't be race. That's a human construction. There won't be different colors of skin. That's how we view things. No, God will shake all the nations. 
and in his kingdom it will be open to all. The law was given to one nation, but Jesus Christ will come to all nations. Literally, he will shake all nations. But secondly, he says here, I will fill this house with glory. What does he mean by that? When Solomon's temple was built and when it was dedicated and those 120, 140,000 animals were killed and there was blood everywhere, oh, the house of Solomon was filled with a glory. It overshadowed. God came down. But in this second temple, the one that under Zerubbabel they're now building in the days of Haggai, he says, I will fill it. Literally? No. This is speaking of Christ. It's saying that in this church, the church of my kingdom, I will fill it with myself, not with a cloud that you can't touch, but I will fill it with myself. I will fill it with Christ that can be known, that can be felt, that can be experienced within our life. You don't have to be in that building, but in that figurative house. I will fill it. The occupier of that house will be Christ. It won't be a cloud. It won't be gold and silver and basins and tables. All the old order will go and I will fill it with myself. I will be the glory, Haggai is saying, of Christ. And thirdly, there's a third promise in verse 9. In this place will I give peace. That's a wonderful promise. The majority of people who come to know the Lord Jesus Christ will come to a building. That's a truth it's easy to demonstrate. The majority of people that hear the gospel, they hear it in a building. You don't have to. You can hear it at home. You can hear it in the open air. But most people will come to a building in this place. Speaking of Christ and the building where usually he delights to come, I will give peace. Do you think these Jews understood it? The bricks that you're putting on top of each other, and it's hard work because there's so few of you that have come back. You're building something far greater than Solomon's temple. In this very place, in Jerusalem, a smaller temple, not so grand, Christ would come physically. He would stand in that building and he would teach the people. He would teach them that he was sent, sent to come, sent to come to the people. 
Many in the world say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. It says in the word of God that the wicked will have no peace. What's the wicked? It's everybody whose sins have not been forgiven. This morning, if you don't know Christ, if you haven't come to this kingdom, if you don't know his glory, if you don't know his touch and help, you are categorized as the wicked. The Lord says, I will give you peace. Do you know that peace today? Only you know that. Only you can ask the question in your heart, do I really have peace? If I take everything away, if everything else disappears, do I have peace with God? That's the question. In this place, will I give peace? Let me explain what it means. Go back to verse 7. We have something really wonderful here. We have the description, a description that can be interpreted in two ways. This is a very difficult verse to interpret, and people quite legitimately come to two different explanations for this verse. The first explanation is something like this. There is to be a gathering in of all who are desirable, and they shall come. That's perhaps not what you thought it meant. Those who Christ considers desirable, they're not attractive, they're not desirable, they're not precious and treasured on their own, but when I shake all nations, the treasures, the precious ones, the elect, those who I consider to be valuable, they shall come. That's a very accurate rendering of what this verse says. The desirable of all nations shall come. Well, I'm not desirable. I'm not attractive. I'm not a treasure, I'm not precious. Oh, but I am in Christ's eyes. For he has set his love upon me. And in his sight, he will gather every precious stone. And as we read in Malachi 3, just recently, when he makes up his jewels, his crown, he will put within it those that he considers to be Precious, the precious, the treasured, the elect, not the kings, not the princes, not the mighty, not the powerful ones, but all my people will be gathered together and I will make up my jewels. They shall be mine when I make up my jewels. Just think about it, what the Lord Jesus said. Jacob have I loved? Esau have I hated. How? Why? I don't know. Why should he put my love on me? Why should he put his love on anyone? Because all of us are worthy of judgment. 
The Lord Jesus Christ, in a parable, he said, Two shall be in a field, and one shall be taken to be with him, and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken and the other left. How? Why? I don't know. That's what the Word of God teaches. It's called sovereign grace. If you start with the assumption, which is undoubtedly true, that none deserve grace and mercy and love, then the fact that Christ lays his love on one person is a miracle. And the fact that he lays his love on many people is a miracle. And when we read in this verse and understand it this way, that the desirable in Christ's eyes and his precious jewels shall come from all nations, oh, that fills us with awe and wonder. How can that be? Why me? Why me? Why not him and her? Because they deserve judgment, just as I do. And yet Christ will come and shake the nations, and my sheep will hear my voice. And in that city, I have many, and I've died for them, and they must hear my voice. Well, that's election. The Word of God teaches it so plainly. But there is another way that we can understand the verse. And this is what the Jews and the rabbis have taught, and the Puritans saw so clearly, and perhaps this is the most common interpretation of this verse. And it means the desire of all nations is Christ. You could have a capital D, the desire, a sleeping desire, because for 400 years or more, from the time that this prophecy was given, 520 BC, 500 or more years, that promise seemed dormant. Will it be answered? There seems to be a contradiction. Isaiah 53 says that he is despised and forsaken and rejected of all men. Is he really the desire of all nations? Well, let's think of it this way. Think of the wise men. They desired him. They came looking. A burden had been put upon them to search for Christ. He was their desire. What about Zacharias and Elizabeth? They were righteous before God and they desired him. What about Simeon? What about Anna, waiting for the coming of the Lord? Anna, who did not leave the temple. She was married for just seven years, widowed for 84 years. She was well over 100, maybe 110. But she was looking for the redemption that would be in Jerusalem. She was there in that place where this prophecy spoke of. 
These people looked to to him, to them. He was their desire. But secondly, we can say that all the nations, whether they knew it or not, they desperately desired a saviour because there's no other remedy. There wasn't for them, there isn't for us. There is an emptiness, a dissatisfaction in life, an empty bucket with holes in the bottom. Unless you desire him, and unless you know him, we have such a desperate need of a saviour. He is to us the true desire of all nations. Thirdly, we can say that he is the desire because in Christ there is all the loveliness, everything that is truly desirable is found in Christ. There's no shadow, there's no tarnish, You look at a diamond and you may see an imperfection, but you look at Christ, you see everything that is to be desired. He is fairer than a thousand. He is the one who we should go to. He's the one that we should be drawn by. All the tinsel, and the rubbish of this world that so occupies our thoughts, put them to one side. Go to the one that is truly desirable. You will find in him today all your needs are met. You will find in him the one who is altogether lovely. Think as well as the admirers of long ago, Abraham, He rejoiced to see and look forward to the coming Christ. Job, we thought of this a few weeks ago, Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives. He had everything taken away, and yet his latter end was more glorious, more wealthy, more great than his beginning. But this one, the desire of all nations shall come, and he has come, and he has filled his house. And we can now say with the hymn writer, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does his successive journeys run, his kingdom stretch from shore to shore, till moon shall wax and wane no more. There is only now one kingdom. Every other kingdom will dissolve. All the boundaries, all the immigration laws, all the boats that cross the channel, they'll disappear. One day the only division will be whether you're in Christ's kingdom or whether you're on the outside, whether he is your desire, or whether you desire something which is altogether inferior. The silver is mine. 
The gold is mine. He's the one that we must go to. He's the one that will give you peace. In the troubles of life, what he is and what he will be to you is all that you need. The desire of all nations has come. Let us go unto him.